0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz,
1: Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc.
2: And I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services.
1: Every week on this podcast, we'll talk to thought leaders on money and investing. We'll mainly interview experts outside of Morningstar, but we'll also tap our internal experts for their opinions, we could think of no better person to talk to than Morningstar's own Don Phillips. Jeff and I have both felt Don's personal influence in our careers, and Don has also been a towering presence in the mutual fund industry, having provided analysis and commentary on funds since the mid-1980s. Don was Morningstar's first mutual fund analyst, and he established the independent voice that all Morningstar analysts thereafter took a cue from. He helped bring about a lot of the tools that investors today take for granted, such as the Morningstar style box and the Morningstar rating, often referred to as the star rating. Don has served in a variety of leadership roles at Morningstar, most recently as head of global research, before paring back his schedule to take on a part-time non-management role. Don has received numerous accolades over the years. Most recently, he received the Matthew R. MacArthur Industry Pioneer Award from the Investment Management Consultants Association in 2016. Don, thank you so much for being here.
3: Well, Thanks, Christine. It's nice to be here with you and Jeff.
1: Let's start by talking about uh, your early interest in Morningstar. Morningstar lore holds that you began investing when you were a paperboy, that you had some extra money and you wanted to put it into a mutual fund. Let's talk about how you got to even know what a mutual fund was.
3: (laughs) I was a a paperboy all throughout uh, middle school and high school, starting about sixth grade. And, you know, it's an everyday job. It's a great discipline. I think our family only took uh, one vacation during that entire time. So, you know, every single day, rain or shine, ice storms, thunderstorms, you know, you were out there. Uh, delivering the papers, which is a great uh, you know, sort of work ethic that you get out of that. But then one year, um, when I was in middle school, my father bought me uh, 100 shares of the Templeton Growth Fund. And I always thought it was interesting. He bought 100 shares because he was thinking uh, like stocks. You buy mm-hmm. a round lot. You know, Today, you always think about mutual fund, you buy a certain dollar amount. But he came at it more from a stock side than the mutual fund side. And he sat me down and he explained, you know, this is a mutual fund. Uh, here's what it does. Uh, he showed me the shareholder report and he showed me the list of companies that you now own a little bit of each of these companies, and Sir John Templeton is your money manager, and he makes the decisions on what stocks to buy and, and to sell and to uh, to hold. And I remember we would watch show uh, Wall Street Week uh, together. My dad watched that every week, but uh, the weeks that John Templeton was on, uh, I would watch with him. And I remember thinking that was so cool. You know, this guy is my money manager. You know, I'm this little paper boy, the least significant investor on the planet, and yet Sir John Templeton is my personal money manager. And that was sort of the magic of mutual funds to me. That just made sense as a way. Uh, to invest. Uh, and I remember being in college talking to some of my fraternity brothers, and they would say things like, oh, my dad and I are playing the market. We're buying this stock or the other. And I thought, you know, what do you know about the market? How are you and your dad going to outguess, uh, you know, these powerful research houses? Um, it just it seemed to me that the, the discipline, the professional management, the diversification that you got with funds were just – made an enormous amount of sense. And so when it came time to sort of go into the field of finance, uh, that's what I wanted to do, something uh, about uh, mutual funds, you know, helping – to to helping people to access them and use them wisely because it seemed to me as a great way to go.
1: So did you know that you wanted to focus on finance, though, as an, as an undergrad, or you were pursuing um, an English major, right?
3: Well, I was an economics uh, okay. major um, as an undergraduate um, through you know, the, the, the first part of my uh, career. And then realizing that uh, that would be far too productive, I, I switched to English, and uh, uh, which was a real passion of mine. I love literature. And uh, so I went into graduate school in, in English, the thinking being that I would be uh, a, a literature professor, but I'd be an active investor on the side. I'd try to live frugally, save and invest money, and that that would be an important part of my uh, you know my, my my overall set of uh, activities. And then I got to, to the end of the master's program, and you had to make a decision: Do you want to lock yourself in a library for the next five or six years in pursuit of the Ph.D.? And, and that was just hard for me. I had gotten married. My wife and I uh, moved to Chicago. Uh, she was going off to work every day, and I was going into a library to read. And I guess maybe having that paperboy discipline, always having a job growing up, uh, I just didn't sit well with me. So I decided to shift things around. And rather than uh, being a a literature professor and investing on the side, I was looking for a job writing about researching investments and then hoping to read the great books on the side. Uh, So what I wanted to be was a mutual fund analyst. Um, but I had no idea that that career path didn't exist. And fortunately, right at that moment, Joe Mansueto created that career path. He took out an ad in the Chicago Tribune that said wanted mutual fund writer. And uh, I called him up and said, I'm your man. <laughs> and uh, came in, we had an interview. We talked about uh, John Templeton. And uh, two days later, he called up and offered me the job.
1: So let's talk about the early days of the fund industry or the, or the, the 80s, uh, for the fund industry, what it was like, the number of funds, also transparency for fund investors. It was quite dissimilar from what we have today.
3: Yeah, it was very different. There are far fewer funds, um, but and they were much more expensive funds. And there really wasn't much discrimination. Uh, bad funds were often the biggest funds. You know, Today, the assets very much flow to the better players, those that have created better experiences for investors. But back then, that wasn't the case. It was more distribution might that determined uh, who had the assets. And you know, the big players were largely the brokerage houses, which often had very mediocre funds and sometimes just terrible funds. I mean, Dean Witter had a dreadful lineup of funds. Uh, there were funds that were designed to be easy to sell, so they'd have super high yields, but with that came all kinds of risks, and they often blew up on investors. So, uh, you know, they were in my mind kind of dark days for the industry. It was one very much marked by salesmanship as opposed to you know what we've come to, to treasure here at Morningstar stewardship. Um, so. You know, it was a place where you know, I think very much funds were bought, not sold. And if you went to mutual fund industry conferences, that's what people would talk about. They'd get up and say, "Mutual funds are bought, or mutual funds are sold, not bought." And meaning that you know, if you had the distribution muscle, it didn't matter what the quality of the fund was; you could find ways to, uh, you know, to to ensnare in, investors into your funds. Uh, so, in my mind, it was not uh, not a great period for the industry. But that doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, lots and lots of points of light. There were lots of great young uh, boutique shops. There were quality shops like Vanguard and T. Rowe and Fidelity, uh, American Funds. But they didn't necessarily have the big assets. You know, the assets tended to be with the the ones that own distribution. So that's been a major change. Can you take us back
2: to that time and maybe looking through the lens of an investor who is trying to choose a mutual fund or fill out an investment portfolio? I mean, what sort of challenges would they face? And then for you as, as a young analyst working at Morningstar, how did we try to
3: respond to, to meet those needs? Well, the big challenge was just getting quality information uh, on the funds. Uh, I remember the first day I was at Morningstar, Joe got a copy of the Wiesenberger book and set it on my desk and said, here's a good thing to read. It's got a lot of information on funds. And the Wiesenberger books were in libraries and they would come out each year in September with total return information to the end of the prior year. So at its absolute freshest, the information was nine months old. Um, you know, isn't that amazing today? Today, you know, you, you know nine minutes after the, the market closes, you know what the price of your mutual fund is. You're, with an ETF, you know every millisecond during the day what it trades at. You know, Back then, it, was, it took nine months to figure out what your return was from the prior year and then to get comparisons to other funds to see how it really stacked up. So that's a way that clearly the industry has changed. There's so much more transparency, um, so much more access to information. And I think that was a big part of Morningstar is using technology to find ways to democratize data and get information not just in the hands of a few elite but out there to a much broader audience so that more people could make informed investment decisions.
2: What was that process like in the early days where basically we had to, I imagine, call out to fund companies or other influencers in the industry? and convince them to be more transparent and forthcoming? What sort of response did, did you and, and Joe
3: get in, in those early days? Well, we just had to get people to answer the phone and you know, explain who we were. Um, you know, one thing that really helped is uh, we got a contract. Uh, Joe secured a contract with Business Week magazine to do the what was called the Business Week Mutual Fund Scoreboard. And it was done in February of each year. Uh, with information through the end of the prior year. And it was done at the time uh, when most of the asset flows were happening in the industry uh, because it was very much focused around the IRA IRA market back then. So people, you know, doing the retirement uh, accounts, they had to get money in by April 15th. Um, And this thing became very, very popular. And Forbes had had something that they'd done for years, uh, a mutual fund scoreboard. But it came out in the the fall, kind of like in August. It was sort of a dead time. They said, "Okay, here's a good time to do the mutual fund issue. But it wasn't a time when people were buying funds. So this business week. Um, fund issue became very important for the industry. And all of a sudden, when we started sending out surveys to fund companies that used to come out just under the name Morningstar. Now it said for use in the Business Week uh, Mutual Fund Scoreboard, we got all of the information back much more quickly and had better access. So we kind of used the, the – we tried to create pull demand either through media clients that we had and then later through financial advisors who were using Morningstar. And I remember one very important uh, situation was with Putnam. Um, Putnam you know, just – wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't take our calls. They say we don't care, you know, about you. We've never heard about you. Um, we tell brokers what to think about our funds. We don't need someone else telling them anything about them. You're just kind of mucking up our, 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 our message. So you know, we don't want to take your calls. But. Fortune Magazine was doing a big uh, profile on Putnam, and I remember Josh Mendez, the reporter, was out there, and they were rolling out the red carpet for Josh, and they were you know taking him from manager to manager. And their PR person noticed that in between the interviews with managers, he was pulling out these sheets and looking at them and making notes and circling things, and he was using the Morningstar mutual fund pages that he had miniographed and and uh, as his background research for the interviews. And all of a sudden, a light went off in Putnam's head. They said, "Wait a minute. Well, we may not care about Morningstar, but we." We darn sure care about Fortune and if Fortune cares about Morningstar and is reading Morningstar first to sort of set their grounding for what they think about us, we need to really make sure that Morningstar has access to, you know, to, to the information and understands our story as well as possible. So it was always that pull demand that we got from, uh, from the media or from advisors that, that changed uh, the behavior of the, the, the fund companies and got us access to more, uh, more information.
1: At what point did you start asking for the manager interviews? So you were initially asking for data, right? And then the manager interviews.
3: Yeah. Joe had been doing a a quarterly publication called the Mutual Fund Sourcebook for about two years when I started. He started in 84. I started in 86. I was hired as the first analyst to add some text and some context uh, to the the data. So Joe had built up the data on a, about six or 700 equity funds. We didn't cover any fixed income funds at the beginning. Um, but he had this idea for these one-page reviews that would have analyst commentary on them. So that was my job was to add that commentary. So my first job was to read uh, – 777 mutual fund prospectuses and write up uh, uh, summaries of how they invested and then to pick out which funds went into this book and then to sequence them and then to start calling up fund managers and asking them uh, questions. So that was the real challenge and when I started at Morningstar, I had spent more time on on English than on economics and I didn't – wasn't a professional investor. But I just set out reading an investment book a week for the first two years I was at Morningstar. Uh, we lived way up in Rogers Park, which is about a 45-minute uh, L ride to, to where the office was, and so I could read for 45 minutes on the way in, 45 minutes going home. We were at the end of the line at each time or, or at each location, so you could always get a seat. And I just sort of plugged away, trying to uh, get up to speed, so I could have good conversations with the fund managers. And one of the things you realize is that when you're having an interview with a fund manager is the initial part of the conversation is you're figuring out just what level you're going to have this conversation on. You know, They're asking themselves, do I have to dial this down to a real remedial level that this guy will understand or can we have a more sophisticated conversation? And so trying to learn more about the industry, more about investing uh, so that you could have a, a meaningful conversation with managers – Uh, was an important part of the job. And the nice thing is that we got some very good support early on from a a great number of managers, Uh, not all of them. Uh, My entire career interviews with Stan Druckenmiller consisted of the words, not interested, click. Uh, but there were others who, you know, Chuck Royce and others who were very generous with their time, took an interest in what we were doing, um, came out to visit us, um, and were very supportive and were making suggestions like, oh, are you also covering this manager? You know, we really like this person. We like this team over here. We'd be interested in your analysis of them. So it, it, it you started to build up a community of managers and people that understood what we were doing, and they were extremely supportive.
1: You have been very involved in hiring analysts, and in the early days, there really weren't Mutual fund analysts, or it wasn 't a well trod career path, so what sorts of things were you looking for when you were enlarging the team?
3: You know that building the team was the big second part after figuring out how to you know, read enough investment books to ask intelligent questions so uh, to managers. so one was learning kind of how to be an analyst, but then the second thing was, okay, how do you become an editor? How do you build a team uh, and the first couple of people that we hired. Um, weren't particularly good and at first I thought you know oh hey you know I'm kind of better than these people you know I'm, I'm, I seem to be stronger at this than uh, some of the people that we were hiring uh, but then a light went off and said well wait a minute um, it doesn't matter how good I am if, if we don't surround ourselves with with a group of really good people um, you know then we're, you know we're, this thing is never going to fly and so the real key to me was getting that that first core of, of, of analysts, And it was bringing uh, John Reckenthaler on board, uh, Kathy Gillis, uh, Oodleboo um, on board, and then Lori Lucas. Uh, Lori was a, a typist for us at the time. And talking to her, I could tell she was a lot brighter than some of these MBAs that we were hiring as analysts. And so I made her an analyst. And she's gone on to have a, a wonderful career at, at Ibbotson and at, at Hewitt and at Callan, and just has made a huge contribution to the, uh, uh, to, to the, 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 the defined contribution space. Um, so I'm really proud of that, that core team. But that was, that was the key thing is, is building a team because uh, it can't be a one-person effort. And I think that's a lesson in business is that at the end of the day, it's, it's who you surround yourself with um, and who are, gonna, who are the people who are going to carry on the tradition that's uh, much more important than what you, know, what you as one person can do.
1: In terms of the public role, one thing that has really struck me is that you were very much Morningstar's public face, still are, but you also encouraged the analysts to get out there and talk to the Wall Street Journal, be on TV. Why was that so important to you to build that underlying team of public faces?
3: Well, one was to find someone like yourself who can do this all much better than I ever could. Uh, You've done an absolutely brilliant job at, at that, Christine. Uh, But the big thing was we were trying to serve well um, the journalists who were calling us up. Um, I remember one of our competitors, um, they they had rules about who could talk to the press and who couldn't. And almost everything had to go through the CEO because he was very worried about uh, upsetting some of his clients, the fund companies. He didn't want to step on any toes. And so journalists would call him up and ask him questions about what's happening in the industry. And they'd always get this view from 30,000 feet. Uh, And I remember one quote he had in the Wall Street Journal that said – he was asked about Fidelity's funds, and he said their funds are better than some, not as good as others. And I remember thinking, well, that's true for every fund family save two, right? You know, someone's best and someone's worse and everyone else is in the middle. Um, and so, you know, journalists didn't find that very useful. And what we did is said, well, rather than just having me pontificate about any issue that comes up, you know, if someone calls up and asks, uh, says, "Hey, I've got a question about uh, what's happening with uh, high yield bond funds." We'd let them talk to the analyst who covered high yield bond funds. And that analyst could say, oh, yeah, you know, that's an interesting question that you raised. Well, there are these managers that think this way and then there's other managers that think this way. And they could give them the lay of the land and really help them write their article. And so what happened then is that the next time that that journalist had a question, you know, they stopped calling our competitors and they started just calling us because they knew they would get more bang for their buck, if you will. They'd get a more meaningful answer. They'd get some traction towards uh, completing their article. And so that, it just came from that. It was the best way – the way to give the best response was to put someone who uh, – to have someone answering the questions who actually knew the answers to them. And we tried to be very responsive to, to the press and to financial advisors or individuals who called. You know, anyone who took the time to, to call us up, uh, we wanted to take seriously and, uh, and, and, and tried to serve them well. And so it really just came from that, that effort of trying to, trying to help people, which was our mission.
1: One of the um, jobs that you and Joe attempt to tackle was uh, shining a light on what funds were actually doing. So let's talk about the prospectus objectives, which were really the main system for classifying funds when you started, and how the style box attempted to really take a step forward on that front.
3: Well, the style box came out of listening to independent advisors. Uh, It was at at an ICFP retreat where a bunch of advisors were sitting around saying, how do I explain to my clients why we have more than one equity fund in their portfolio? You know, they'd say, well, look, we already have a a, a U.S. stock fund – why do we need a second? Let's add a gold fund or something, you know, esoteric like that. And the advisors would say, "Yeah, I could see adding a, a gold fund, but that's not the second fund we add. That's maybe the seventh or the eighth. How do we explain that just because you have one equity fund, you, you perhaps haven't covered all of the equity markets? And how could you explain how two funds uh, might be complementary and another two might uh, you know might just be overlapping? And that was the idea of the style box to kind of give you a sense of what part of the economy a manager was. Uh, was mining. and The idea was for it to be descriptive. We never meant for it to be restrictive, um, to be the style police and tell managers, you can buy this stock but not that stock. Uh, That was never our intent. We just wanted investors to understand um, what the fund was actually doing. And if you think back then, the, the names were in the industry, you had more creativity than they do today, but they they tended not to be very helpful in, in helping you understand what the fund was actually doing. You, know, you had to be an insider to know that Windsor was a value fund and Janus was a growth fund, that they bought very different stocks and you should set completely different expectations for the performance of those two funds. So this was a way of just helping to you know, add some clarity to the playing field um, and – That ended up giving us a tool that we could turn the tables on the fund companies because before that, there was a huge amount of excitement or effort put in on fund companies and trying to be number one in their category. And the easiest way to be number one in your category is to be miscategorized. And fund companies back then essentially had the ability to create or to choose their own category. If they called it a growth and income fund, it went into the growth and income bucket, even if it had no income seeking activities whatsoever. And so at times where growth was in favor over income, they would be the number one growth and income fund. And we realized that these categories were largely being used to serve the the industry, not not investors. And we said, well, why don't we just turn? this around and come up with categories that make sense from the investor's point of view. And and that's one of those subtle ways where having the same database but having a different point of view means that you you manipulate it differently. You uh, you present it differently. And taking control of the categorization system, taking it out of the hands of of, of marketers that were trying to use it to make each fund look as good as possible and putting it in the hands of advisors and investors who cared about what are the implications that I should be setting for these funds so that I can deploy them successfully. It was a huge sea change.
1: In the early days, I remember of Morningstar, there was, in fact, some threatened litigation, right, that you stepped on some toes of, of fund companies.
3: Oh, there, there was actual litigation. Uh, there was a fund company uh, that no longer exists called Pilgrim that uh, ran an ad, a high-profile ad in the Wall Street Journal that went from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. And it said, has anything like this ever happened before? And there were five boxes on the page with uh, big numerals, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. And then if you read the fine print, there was a little asterisk said, in its category. Um, and So the implication was that somehow Pilgrim had the top five mutual funds. But the reality is they'd really sort of uh, you know, chosen very carefully to, to craft this one through five. They had one fund that was number one in one category. They had another fund that had multiple share classes that was like number two and hence also number three and four in another category. And then another another fund, I think it was a closed-end fund, that was number five in, in some third category. And they'd strung these together as if uh, – to create the impression that they had had the five best performing mutual funds. And I, I pointed out that this was just sort of manipulating the st- statistics in a way that painted an unflattering picture and I wrote a commentary called uh, Lies, Damn Lies and Fund Advertisements and uh, they didn't like it and so uh, they sued me and uh, there was a libel claim. Uh, they sued me for more money, uh, many times my net worth uh, at the time. They also sued Morningstar. Uh, but ultimately when we got someone to read this, uh, the California Supreme Court threw the case out saying uh, as much as Pilgrim didn't like the commentary, they couldn't point out anything that wasn't true in it and that ultimately truth remains the, the, the perfect defense uh, from libel. Uh, so we, the case got thrown out but it took over a year and a half and it, you know, it really took its toll. I, I feel for people that uh, have to go through that kind of thing. You know, unfortunately, we live in a society where you know, someone can make someone else's life miserable just through litigation.
2: So Don, I wanted to ask you about a relatively new concept in the fund industry, which is free. Uh, <laughs> the fund industry is not known for giving things away. And yet, one of the things that we've seen in recent years is free index funds. Um, and I think the notion, generally speaking, is that as costs move towards zero, that you know funds will be treated more like commodities. And so I was curious, just as somebody that's been in the industry, observed the industry for many, many years. What do you think the implications of that are for first the industry and then also by extension investors, particularly with a focus on any sort of unintended consequences that you think that shift could create for them?
3: yeah it certainly isn't something that you would have uh, anticipated uh, 20 years ago um in fact fees were were generally overlooked because they were collected so seamlessly in the industry so it was an industry where for years you know people that were just mediocre at what they did could have a great business with super high profit margins and, and clearly that's uh, you know less and less the case and in the future will almost certainly not be the case at all uh but you know the one trend that that that's in place here that i, I don't see changing is that we're going to have better and better deals for the investor. Um, We've moved from a world where mutual funds were sold, not bought, to one where they're bought, not sold. And it's really a buyer's market today. And sellers are responding by driving their costs all the way down to zero. Now, are there downsides to that? Almost certainly. Um, you know, there is something good about investing in investment talent and having investment analysts. They perform a useful uh, task for society. I mean, you, you forget that in indexing because a lot of people are piggybacking on the talents of active managers through index funds, which collectively represent you know, all of the bets that active managers are making. Uh, but there is a value to society for having trained analysts, looking at securities, forcing corporate management to be better, um, and as price go down lower and lower, you're going to have less ability to reinvest in that kind of uh, R&D, if you will, for the investment management industry. And I think that will ultimately uh, have negative consequences.
0: A
1: related question is whether um, the attention has been too much on fund expense ratios, whereas other parts of uh, financial services fees haven't received as much scrutiny. Is that of concern to you?
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, we're just sort of crowd animals. You know, we, we gravitate to one subject and focus on it exclusively and ignore other things. Uh, look at the news cycle. Um, you know, there are all kinds of events that, that have huge importance that we ignore for weeks and months or years and then suddenly we become all infatuated with them. Uh, certainly, mutual fund expenses are a very important thing and, uh, you know, Jack Bogle you know, very properly pointed out the importance of cost but it's not the only thing. There's so many more dynamics that go into getting the right investor into the right fund for the right reason. And you can have a low-cost portfolio that's wildly inappropriate for an investor that leads to a disastrous outcome uh, that you can't declare a victory simply because it was done in a cost-efficient manner.
1: In hindsight, was the period when you evolved as a mutual fund analyst the 80s and 90s when I became a fund analyst, do you think that there was a disproportionate focus on security selection and the difference you could make with security selection at the expense of some of the other... Factors uh, like asset allocation and other considerations.
3: I, I think uh, I think that's almost certainly the case, and certainly you know, Ibbotson, which uh, a company that is now part of Morningstar, it was long advocating the, the the superior importance of asset allocation. But you know, intuitively, you 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 just sort of tend to think, gee, security selection must be important. This stock went up this much. This one went down that much. Right. Um, and so, people naturally focused on that, and you want to believe in you know, superstar manager 's investment talent. I still believe it exists. Um, but the reality is you can piggyback on that talent very inexpensively with an index fund, and the cost argument has become uh, you know very, very compelling so uh, but part of this also might be getting into maybe looking at investing uh, in, in maybe a, a little less you know, with, with, uh, with with big eyes and a little more practical matter. And what r- really matters in investing uh, is do we create good experiences? Do investors meet their goal? Uh, And at the end of the day, I think we're all in the behavior modification business. You know, are we helping people to tone tone down the the fear and greed cycle and help them chart an intelligent, rational path towards their goals? And at the end of the day, if if the investor wins, you know, this whole industry has done its job. But if the investor loses, then then all of us have failed to some degree.
1: You mentioned manager interviews, Don, and I know that's always been a big part of the analyst job. Um, but we're getting clear indications from investors that they're preferring index products. We're seeing that trend pretty vividly. So let's talk about the role of evaluating active managers. Um, Does it still seem worthwhile? Does it seem like we should devote more energies elsewhere? What's your take on that question?
3: Well, clearly it's still very valuable because there's massive amounts of money that are in active managers and there are huge numbers of individuals whose Retirement fortunes whose uh, prospects are are tied to uh, what those managers are doing. Um, you're right; more money is going into passive, and that's been a, a you know terrific from a cost standpoint. And, you know, you're, in many cases, you know, traditional index fund that Jack Bogle is a huge fan of makes enormous sense. It's a good investment choice. But you're getting you know passive is getting more active every day as you get into things like uh, strategic beta, and you're getting more and more you know manager spins on that. But when you're talking about funds that are now run by an algorithm, you can't go in and do an interview with an algorithm. So you have to understand some of the personality of the organization that put this together. And we have to find digital ways to go in and understand and decode uh, what the algorithm is, what makes one strategic beta fund different from another, or what makes one index fund different from another. Um, People act as if it's moving to indexing and it's just one big thing. But there are millions more indexes than there are stocks out there there. Uh, and there there's, I mean, there's, there's more funds than stocks and so there's more indexes than, than funds. So there's a huge amount of work still to be done um, in, the, in the field of indexing to understand what are the assumptions that different index providers make and how, what implications do those have for portfolio deployment.
1: Don, I know that we have all talked a lot about Jack Bogle and his legacy in the wake of his recent passing. But can you share that with uh, people listening about uh, Mr. Bogle's influence on Morningstar Star and, and on you personally?
3: Well, Jack became a, a, a close friend over the years. I mean, I'm not saying that you know, we were family or anything like that, but he was just always a, a kind, supportive person. And I think philosophically, uh, we, we we had a lot of things in, in common in, in our views of the, the industry and putting investors first. And He reached out early to Morningstar. He was uh, very supportive of what we were doing. I always had suggestions for how we could do it better and uh, his suggestions were always very well thought out and we implemented a lot of them through the years. So he just became an incredibly important part of of my life and uh, and of Morningstar's uh, life and and for many, many investors. And I think that's the important thing. I I don't think of Jack as gone. you know What I do is celebrate the fact that his legacy will, will live on for generations and that investors yet to be born are going to benefit from the things that he championed. So in my mind, Jack is, is very, very much with us today. Uh, he's part of the spirit of Morningstar. He's part of the spirit of the best parts of this industry and there are many people in this industry that are here today because – of you know their their admiration for Jack and what he did, but you know an interesting thing about Jack is that you know, he was talking about when I started in the industry in the 1980s. You know, to me, I would look at you know the, the progress of the industry since the 1980s and see lots of progress, whereas Jack would often look back to this nostalgic view of this profession that he knew in the 40s or the 50s and would see deterioration. And so the interesting thing is you know, it's where's your starting point. But one of the things that Jack would always do is when he looked at the industry, he would discount Vanguard and take it out and say, well, look at this other stuff. It's all overpriced. And I'd say, well, gee, when I look at the industry, a lot of what I see is Vanguard and it's a wonderful part of the industry. And then there are these these boutique managers that are very good and there are other places that improved their practices because of the competition that, uh, that Jack created. And so I tended to see the progress where he saw the deterioration. Uh, But I think that's an important note is that, even if you never had a penny in index funds or a penny in Vanguard's funds, you benefited from Jack's presence because the competition that he created, uh, you know, forced prices down across the industry and the pressure that he put on regulators and and, and others improved disclosure and it made the industry more transparent and more accountable to investors and that's a legacy that uh, will live on and on.
1: Are investors overdoing their stampede out of active products in favor of low-cost index products? In your opinion, uh,
3: probably. I mean, people always react to what's been in favor in the recent past, and index has done very well. But you can't get away, as Jack would you can't get away from arithmetic. Um, you know, the the, the lower costs are, are very important, and what this has done is it's raised the bar for active managers. And you know, for a long time, your firms were in denial. Uh, you know, that phrase that I used at the beginning, mutual funds are sold, not bought, meant that, hey, that performance stuff doesn't matter. The higher costs don't matter. You used to get people up pontificating on stage about, well, would you rather have a Cadillac or uh, an Oldsmobile or something and saying that the more you pay, the better you'll get. And you know, as Jack correctly pointed out in investing, you, you get what you don't pay for. Uh, so – you know, it, it's it's been a real you know sea change. I, I still think there's a place for active management. Vanguard was built on on active management, and interestingly, if you look at Vanguard's funds uh, over an extended period of time, their active funds have done as well as or better than their passive funds. But yeah, you know, it, it just the average active fund you know has, has underperformed because it's been overpriced and probably not managed as well as, as it, uh, it should be. But um, that doesn't mean that there aren't you know, active funds out there that uh, uh, w- will serve investors very well.
1: Have you shifted around the contents of your personal portfolio as the years have gone by to emphasize index products more? You
3: know, I have more money in active funds today than I ever do, but it's probably not as high a percentage as it once was. Uh, so I do use index funds. I mean, it's not, it, to me, it's not an either-or battle. Um, But I have, you know, my my shifting in my personal portfolio. I'm much more focused today on philanthropy and giving, giving money away, as opposed to just building up a a larger and larger nest egg. So I've put more of my investing on autopilot as I'm thinking more about, you know, how to disperse this money as opposed to how to accumulate it. But I don't regret at all the the early days researching and looking for best funds and building a portfolio. And uh, we're in that position today. You know, I would still focus very much on. Um, You're know, trying to find the, you know, the, the, the best funds. Do you think that we're still, as an industry, too fixated on active versus
2: passive? I know that there are some here at Morningstar that talk about, I think they use phrases like personalization as the new active, right, to try and shift the conversation forward. Do you, do you think that that's a sensible mindset to apply to things, or do you think it's still important for investors to be very aware of the choices that they have, which include actively
3: managed and passively managed funds? Yeah, I think way too much has been done over active versus passive. I mean, largely, it boils down to just cost. And what it really is, is that uh, the common sensible notion that low cost is better than high cost. And, you know, I used to talk about this horseshoe approach to investing. Um, said, so, you know, you could have, you, we think of it as, as an either or thing, like a spectrum where you've got uh, active on one side, passive on the other. So, you know, I think of it more like a horseshoe and the two prongs, either of those are good at choices. You know, one would be, uh, you know, great managers at reasonable cost. The other would be low cost, you know, broad market indexing. And what you wanted to purge from the portfolio was the U-shaped part of that horseshoe, um, which are sort of, you know, not particularly well-managed overpriced funds, uh, which could be overpriced index funds. Um, that's what you wanted to purge from your portfolio. And I remember Bogle saying once, well, uh, oh, Phillips, you, you got a lot of crazy theories like that horseshoe theory and things like that. And I said, well, Jack, isn't that you know, pretty much what you had at Vanguard? You had great managers like John Neff that, that, that packaged uh, inexpensively and then you had index funds. And he goes, well – I guess if you put it that way, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I take it back. Uh, but you know, I think too much is done over the active versus passive. I do think the personalization is a very important part because again, the, the art of investing is matching investment to investor. and So much of the, the case for indexing is, comes from strict performance benchmarking uh, arguments that come out of investment assessment um, and all of that is sort of tangential to the match to the investor. You know, so you know, we used to use the phrase: "We want you know the right fund uh, for, to the right investor for the right reasons." It's that match, and and that's what we're starting to see in the behavioral side. This personalization, because uh, at the end of the day, it's about investors meeting their their goals. And for many people, uh, you know, a straight index fund is going to be far too volatile for them to stomach. You know, it's, it's how do you water that down? How do you uh, you know dilute that in a portfolio to come up with the right mix through asset allocation and other techniques. Uh, that, that determines whether the investor has an, a successful experience or not. And you know, one of the most disastrous experiences investors have had during my you know, career at Morningstar has, has been with the, 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 the NASDAQ 100, you know, chasing those stocks you know, full of tech, you know, the, the, the tech-heavy indexes back during the, the, the tech bubble. I mean that destroyed huge amounts of money from people who said, oh, I'm doing the sainted safe thing uh, by buying an index fund. Uh, I remember uh, Jack Brennan who you know, in the wake of the Bogle thing doesn't get nearly enough credit. I mean he's a, he's a, he's a good and decent man who you know, had a falling out with Bogle and their feud was kind of a, an ugly chapter in the fund industry's history. But you know, Brennan did a lot of really great things for Vanguard and a lot of good things for the industry. And I remember seeing him at an ICI uh, Investment Company Institute conference one year. And he was asked, you know, if you could have done one thing differently during the whole tech bubble, what would have been? And he said, I, I would have closed the, the growth index fund. And people were scratching their heads saying, it's an index fund. You don't have any responsibility to, you know, to close it. People knew what, exactly what they were getting. You know, why would you have closed that? And I think one of the great things about Vanguard is they, they had what the, – the Swiss Army where all of the, their senior executives would be on the phone lines periodically hearing what investors were saying. And Jack knew that people had bought that fund with inflated expectations. You know, they expected it to continue to go up uh, by you know, 70 80% a year. And when it didn't do that, they were disappointed. And the worst thing is he knew that the flows meant that huge amounts of money came in at the peak and then left at the trough. And so you know, here he was saying something that was you know, just completely under understandable to the rest of the industry saying, yeah, we would have closed a successful fund that was easy to sell or I wish we had done that uh, because we created too many bad investor experiences. And To me, that was a sign of someone who got it, um, just the way Jack Bogle got it. I mean Jack Bogle closed a lot of funds and got a lot of press for that at times when his peers would be you know, racing to launch exactly the type of fund that he was closing. So you know, I think in the long run um, – It's the the experience that you create for investors that determines uh, your success in this industry. And those that create good experiences have more people gravitating towards them. People that create bad experiences, well, those people go out and tell other people about that. So, you know, shy away from that. And The advisors that helped people perhaps get into those funds say, hey, I don't want to do something with that fund group again because that's going to bring up that uh, that open wound and the money that we lost the last time we went there. And that's where we got into these discussions about salesmanship to stewardship and it led to the work that that we did on stewardship and fund companies, just asking these questions. You know, what kind of products do they offer? And That's a main way that fund companies define themselves is what products do they offer and at what time do they offer them? You know, are they launching internet funds in 1999 or you know, are they, you know, are, are they you know, always you know, trying to either you know, amplify or modify uh, the behavioral uh, – the fear and greed cycle? And So that's why I come back. Yeah, you know, We're all in the behavior modification business and that's the question you've got to ask. Are you amplifying the fear and greed cycle, trying to make money off of investors' fear and greed uh, or are you trying to, uh, to, to modify it? And sadly, if you look at, say, fund advertising, you know, you see over the decades that the fund industry has tried to amplify it. They ran ads for you know, tech-heavy funds you know, after the peak or at the peak of 1999 uh, and then after the market crashed, they were running ads for their government bond funds. Uh, encouraging you to not take risk at the exact time when you should have been taking risk. So unfortunately, that's been a a very consistent contrarian indicator um, over the years.
1: Let's talk about the ETF space in relation to that. That Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you've got uh, a group of generally very low-cost products, but in some cases sliced and diced in a way that might not lead to great investor outcomes.
3: Yeah, you know, again, it, it it depends on how you, you look at it. I, I, it worries me sometimes this arms dealer mentality saying you know, we don't have any responsibility for how the weapons we create are used or deployed. You know, we just make the weapons. You know, what people do with them is someone else's responsibility. You know, I tend to admire the groups that, that step up and say, hey, you know, we want to think about what's the end user's experience here and are we you know, creating something that, that people are deploying successfully or not. You know, I don't think that, you know, that everything has to be, you know, completely watered down or as safe as possible. But if you do something that's more esoteric, you know, it needs to come with more and more warning labels and, and more and more guidance on how to deploy it successfully. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly where to draw the line on that. But at the end of the day, you can't take your eye off on, you know, what's the experience that investors are getting from this. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about ETS. I mean, I like them a lot. Um, they're low cost. I use them. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I've never sold an ETF. Um, I've bought a number of them. Uh, the trading part of it worries me some. Um, to me, I, I do not understand why, if you are a long-term investor, you need the ability to go in and trade during the day. To me, all that does is encourage bad behavior. Uh, again, a, a Bogle line. You know, he said the the key to investing is you know don't just do something, sit there. Uh, and I remember thinking uh, you know about you know, with, with all of the, the internet and CNBC and things like this and all of this you know, information bombarding investors, you know, that today we have saddled the average individual with all of the disadvantages that historically only the pros had. Because uh, I talked to fund managers in the early years and I remember one manager saying, the best thing I can do for my clients really is to go on vacation. It because if I sit in the office, you know, I'm going to, I'll be reading all of this different input. I'm being doing everything I can to try to add value to the portfolio. and I'm going to end up focusing on the minutia and sort of lose sight of the big picture. And I'm going to overreact to things and I'm going to do things that you know, are well intended but end up uh, actually hurting us in the long run. And I think that's a big reason why indexing works so well is that you, you buy and hold forever. You don't try to outguess the market. You don't try to you know, constantly be tinkering with things. Uh, Again, don't just do something, you know, sit there. Uh, It makes a lot of sense and so, you know, today, you know, it used to be the individuals could just go off and not kind of worry about these things. Now they have access to so much information And, and that's been another sea change since I started at Morningstar. You know, when we started, you know, the challenge facing investors was how do you get a hold of some good information so you can make a decision? You know, today the challenge is the exact opposite. It's how do you make sense of an overload of information so that you can make a good decision? And you, know, you can't say that you know, having the ability to get out at any moment of the day is, is, a, is a bad thing. But sometimes um, you know, not having that is, you know, or not being tempted to, to always you know, be thinking about the, the exit is a good thing. It keeps you focused on the long term.
2: What do you think the fund industry is going to look like in 10 years and how do you think the relationship between investor and fund will have changed over that period of time?
3: Well, I, I think we're at a point where it's, it's maybe more difficult than ever to say that because I think, you know, as you point out, that costs are going to zero. Um, I, I think it, it, we're at a period of radical change. And I kind of think of it like the music industry. I mean, it may be that the mutual fund is like, uh, like the old LP. And you know, we'll still have music 10 years from now, but we may not be listening to it on LPs. Um, and where we used to spend a huge amount of money, I did personally, you know, collecting records, now I spend almost nothing. I get my information or my music digitally. Um, and so the whole music industry has changed. It's gone from something where you were paying a lot for the packaging and the distribution as you did with with an LP and record stores uh, to one where that cost has gone to almost zero and you're getting it instantaneously and, and digitally. And the same thing I think may happen with asset management. We may be less focused on the vehicle like the mutual fund uh, and maybe either get alternative vehicles or just have the the IP delivered to us uh, in an electronic fashion. So I think it's a radical change. And if you look at, say, the music industry where things went from a lot of payment for packaging and distribution – and it used to be, you know, an artist made their money from selling the records, uh, but then went out and toured almost for free. Now it's the inverse of that. Now you sort of give away the music, but you make a lot of money on the concerts. And I think maybe the analogy for asset management firms is they get a little way from selling packaged products, more to selling their IP. And I also think that the, their IP they'll move from just, you know, here's a fund to focusing more on portfolio uh, assembly, which is sort of the putting the the fund into action. It's the live performance of the music, if you will. And so I think you'll see more of an overlap between what asset managers do and what uh, uh, financial planners uh, have have historically done. And I think that's one of the reasons you see so many uh, traditional mutual funds buying robo-advisors or developing that kind of capability, either to share with advisors or to offer it directly to the investing public. But the overarching trend that I think is there is it's going to mean – uh, lower cost and more choice for investors, the same way as a music listener today, you have an infinite library at your disposal for a fraction of the cost of what buying you know, a handful of albums used to be. You've been at the forefront
2: of innovation here at Morningstar and also within the industry, just observing industry practices and evaluating them, I'm curious right now, something that you're working on here at Morningstar that you're particularly excited about and you think will – you know, push Morningstar and the investors that we try to serve in in new and interesting directions, and then maybe also some things outside of Morningstar uh, that you've observed that, you know, you're particularly interested or excited about uh, areas of study or experimentation that, that have gotten your attention. I'd be curious your perspectives on those things.
3: Well, this is an exciting time for that kind of experimentation going on because there's so much creativity going on in the fintech space today. You know, at Morningstar, one of the things I'm really proud of is the work we've done on ESG. Uh, To me, that's something investors have a right to know. Uh, What are the environmental, social, and governance consequences of – Where their money is going, and I think making that connection between corporate behavior and the investor dollars, recognizing that the investor is the owner and giving them the rights to have a say in in things that matter very much to them, and frankly matter to our society, I, I think that's a big plus. Uh, there's another initiative we're doing at Morningstar that you will see rolling out over the next couple of years that I'm very excited about and that's beginning to look more at uh, not just what a fund holds but the delta, You know, how a manager is changing his or her portfolio or how a strategic uh, beta fund is changing its portfolio. What are the implications of that? Uh, what, what do the, the purchases look like? What do the sells look like? Uh, I think of it as a, a chance to, or a chance to digitize process and, and take the whole process uh, part of analyzing mutual funds, which has largely been journalistic. You know, you ask a manager, "Do you have a process?" Thinking you're going to catch them off guard, and they're going to say, "Oh, darn! I don't have a process. <laughs> I forgot to." Uh, uh, uh. And of course, they, they have a good stock answer. And then, you know, what you do to follow up is six months later, you come back and you ask them the same question, and you see are they saying the same things as before? And if they do, you give them a big check mark and says, "Aha! Consistency of process. That must be important." and lead to better results. And uh, what I think we can do is, you know, that's a hypothesis we can test. You know, they can say you have a hypothesis and you can ask them to describe it. But I think we've got the ability to, using big data, go in and really say, okay, let's really see the the proof in the pudding. How do the actions reflect the beliefs and and how much are are they aligned and do they change over time? Uh, Because I think investment management is a science like anything else that you can study and you can identify the better practices and the weaker players. And I think we're still very much in the early days of that. And I think this will, lead to a better understanding of what makes a good portfolio and hopefully lead to people deploying funds, whether active or passive or some hybrid form, uh, more successfully.
1: How about other parts of life apart from investing? I know you are a big lover of literature, but any other areas that have really captured your interest?
3: You know I, I think to me one of the, the biggest innovations that's happening across our society is just the recognition of how important diversity is you know I'm a student of uh, you know, literature as you mentioned I love literature I love philosophy I love history and to me those are all things that sort of reflect diversity you know when you're reading literature you're seeing the world through different eyes you know through different points of view the same thing with philosophy with history you're seeing the world through different time points and realize that if you're just centered in one place you're just getting one perspective and one of the great things that's happening in society we're seeing at corporations, we're seeing in boardrooms, people realizing that just having one point of view multiplied by, you know, six people that all have the same point of view is not diversity. We need to get real differences of opinion out there on the table and into the mix. And that's something that I think you're really beginning to see in corporate America. You're starting to see it in government. And I think only good things can come out of that. So that's something that I'm very, you know, very pleased to see happening in our society. I'm curious, speaking of different perspectives and how
2: one can bring those together optimally, I know that you've served on investment committees in the past. And so I'm just curious lessons that you would impart based on the experiences that you've had best practices, worst practices. When it is you thought that the sum exceeded, or I should say the whole exceeded the sum of its parts.
3: Yeah, that that's a, a terrific question. I can think of lots of you know, individual examples. Um you know, I think with investment committees, you know, the, the real key is just to get away from the, the knee-jerk things. You know, something's down, it it's an embarrassment to the committee that it's lost money. You want to hide your mistakes. And, and that's just sort of a natural human inclination to do that but you need to have people on the committee that are willing to step up and remind you, why did we buy this in the first place? Is that still intact? You know, should we stay the course? Um, you know, those become so important and again, you're, you're arguing against you know, human inclination. Uh, which is why you know I say often you know, we're in the behavior modification business, and it's our own behavior we have to modify. It's not just you know we we know it all, and these uh, you know little investors don't know it, and we have to help them out. You know, financial advisors need help with this. Professionals need help, and it's a natural inclination to try to bury your mistakes and and trumpet your wins. But if you do that, what are you what are you doing definitionally? You know, definitionally, you're you're selling low and you're buying high. And, and that's what, what we have to reverse. And that's why I think having uh, – if, if you've got a, a, a properly constructed you know, portfolio you know, committee or investment committee, you can get that voice in there that reminds you of what you really should be doing even if it goes against your inclinations.
2: How do you facilitate that? You mentioned proper structure and so did you find through your experiences that maybe there were some formats or structures that worked
3: less well than others – you know, one of the things that I think that works really well, and, and this is a, an idea I got from Kathy Oodleby, who spent a long time at Morningstar. She said whenever she bought a stock, she would write down what are the reasons that she yeah. bought that stock, and she'd put it on a little piece of paper, and then she'd put it in a drawer. And she made it a point that before I ever sell that stock, I go back and read that and see, okay, that was my thesis. Now judging the stock, don't judge it just on the experience you've had, but judge it on did it hold to the thesis? Is the thesis still true, and is the stock performing that way? And I think you want to do that same kind of thing structurally as an investment committee is go in and have clearly articulated reasons for why you own something, and only sell it if it no longer if it's violated those reasons in some way. Not just if it's underperformed, um, because you know that time a lot of times what you're doing then is reacting to the noise in the market, and you're losing sight of your longer term plan, which probably. Probably was fairly well uh, considered when you, when you put it into place. When you reflect
2: on the arc of fund research, which you've had the opportunity to participate in, shape, observe, you know, what do you think has been the most meaningful improvement that's taken place over the last few decades? And, and then where are the places where, you know, we as analysts need to continue to sort of shore up our deficiencies or find other ways to uncover opportunities for investors?
3: Well, I, I think it's become much more holistic. I mean, today you have a, a, a access to a great amount of information, at least in the U.S. Not in every market, um, and managers tend to be pretty, um, you know, willing to talk about uh, their philosophies. Uh, we do a better job of, you know, getting out, talking to the managers, getting the full story, putting it into a context. But I think there's still things we can do in, in big data and helping us to, you know, digitize more of the, the analysis that can you know, give the analyst an even better leg up. But to me, one of the most exciting things that's happening in fund research is the, the, the bridge to the investor, some of the things that are happening in the behavioral uh, finance world. Um, because the art of investing is, is the match between investment and investor. And I think we've done a very nice job of documenting investments and uh, now there's a greater opportunity than ever to say, how do you create the correct, the, the correct link to the investor? And the other frontier that I think is very important is not to look at investments uh, just in, in isolation but to think about how they contribute to portfolio construction. And so I think those are more and more of the frontiers that are in front of us. But you, you can't broach those frontiers without having done the legwork that our analysts uh, have done and continue to do today. And, and I will point out that you know our analysts today – are held to much higher standards than we were in the early days. I mean some of the stuff that you – know, we, we, we worked so hard just to fill up the boxes. And so sometimes you were dashing these things off in a matter of minutes. And our analysts today do such a, a detailed, thorough research job that uh, it's just it's, – it's incredibly impressive to me, the, the, the caliber of the work that they do. Do you think that one of the unintended
2: consequences of greater transparency, more ready access to data and unfettered choices, behavioral costs that investors have incurred? And, you know, I, I guess how should we maybe as analysts or investors in general think about some of the trade-offs that are involved between being able to maneuver around in their investments – and tinker versus maybe some of the costs that they might unwittingly incur by mistiming their
3: investments. Yeah, I think that's a real central question, and I think it's one of the reasons too why financial advisors have remained, uh, you know, so important in this industry and why they've continued. Their practices have continued to grow. You know, there was this thinking that there's going to be disintermediation. You know, as you had more information out there, uh, advisors would fade away. Individuals would just everyone would do it themselves what a lot of individuals realize is that they weren't equipped to do it themselves. They didn't have – it's not that they didn't have access to the data. It's just they didn't have the discipline to do that. And so advisors have increasingly become coaches, uh, ones that that sort of talk you off the cliff and keep you from overreacting to the short-term uh, events and, and you know focusing on the long-term goals. So – You know, to me, I think where advisors earn their keep and their perception of where they earn their keep has has truly shifted uh, over the years. And I think they're doing things today that are, in many ways, much more valuable than what they had done historically.
1: Let's talk about the future of advice because the cost of advice has come way, way down in terms of some of the robo-advisors and other solutions for providing advice. Um, do you think that there is enough transparency in the advice landscape for consumers, enough accountability? You
3: know, it's, it's a tough question to open up because once you start thinking about transparency and accountability, you get into, well, should we have a performance record for every advisor? And then do we compare them to a benchmark? And are they above that, in which case they're a good advisor? or Are they below that, in which case they're a bad advisor? But the advisors don't deal in the world of benchmarks. Uh, they're more in the world that Jeff was talking about earlier of personalization. And you know, their goal is to help a client articulate and identify their goals and then create a path towards that. And you know, the only real you know, source ultimately for judging whether that progress is, is working out well or not is the client who has complete access to you know, how uh, how their accounts are doing. So I think on one hand, there is there's great transparency there. Um, and clearly the, the advisors are doing something well because they're holding on to the clients. You know, I think you know in the fund industry for a long time, you know, it it's been the, the, the typical holding period has been around three years. And you hear some things that it's coming down these days with ETFs and in some ways the, the calculation gets difficult. But I think a long-term number has been about three years. You talk to most uh, RIAs and people like that, you know, they have two, three percent turnover per year. And that's advice, investors voting with their feet that they, they are satisfied. So they're – and they're analyzing the experience that they're having and they're voting, yes, this is a good experience. So you know, on the one hand, you could say that the, the, the advice market is you – know, doesn't have a lot of transparency. On the other hand, from the investor's point of view, you have complete transparency to the experience you're getting and investors are telling uh, us collectively that they're getting a, a, a largely good experience.
2: We've seen fund fees come down, uh, I would say to a certain extent, advice fees. I wouldn't say they've been impervious to those pressures, but they've certainly kept them at bay to a greater extent. And so I'm curious what your view is on that and whether you think we're moving inexorably on a path towards fee pressure there and and also a related question is based on the interactions that you have with advisors and planners, the role that technology will play in enabling advice and and making them more efficient to maybe counteract some of the fee pressure that
3: they're under yeah i I think there is fee pressure, but there's also a lot of satisfaction with uh, with from clients on the experience that they're having, so that sort of you know offsets to some degree that fee pressure. I don't think – I think you know, most clients react to the the experience that they have, not simply to the cost in, in isolation of it. So I don't know that the fee pressure will be you know, as great on advisors as it's been on uh, on manufacturers, if you'll use sort of the industry's nomenclature. Um, but that said, I, I do think that um, – you know there there will be more attention there'll be more models that are thrown out there you know personally you know I pay my advisor uh, you know a, a flat fee uh, not a percentage of assets and you know if you worked it out in basis points uh, um you know it, it, it would be a very low number um if I were paying you know twenty or 30, 40 basis points it'd be many many times what I'm paying but it's a fair fee and and it's it's one that that she's very happy to work for and you know we we talk about it and revisit it and it's money that i'm you know very happy to pay because it's it's uh, I, I think I get good counsel and um but but I, I think more and more people will do that and explore different models. So the basis point thing works very well you know if you know, if you're starting off uh, for for smaller accounts. there are ways that that can be very efficient and it's very seamless. There, there are a lot of positives to that. but you know higher net worth individuals, you know basis points suddenly don't make as much sense anymore. You end up you know, paying huge amounts for you know, the same service that you got at a much lower level. So I, I think you'll see that start to to bifurcate in different models come into play. I, I think like a lot of people in this industry, I admire what Cheryl Garrett and others have done with the you know, charging by the hour and fees like that. And I think you'll just see different models emerge. And, and hopefully, investors will be smart about it. I, I think that paying for advice is money well spent, but you, it's also very easy to overpay for, for that advice. And you want to be you know, smart about this because it will have an impact on the, the ultimate success that you have.
1: Why has a fiduciary standard for advisors been so hard to enact, in your view?
3: Well I think because fiduciary standards in general are very hard to to enact. look at ERISA and all of the the unintended consequences that that had, and you worry about uh, uh, sort of the, the the police state that's uh, you know, that 's sort of you know, created by this um, you know it, it is the intentions I think are terrific around this and and you know I, I think you know, we are moving in many ways more and more towards this kind of uh, an area but it it 's easy to see where you can come up with lots of uh, you know, bureaucracy, lots of red tape, lots of uh, you know, um, things that just don't make make sense in, in this. And, you know, so it's one thing that's very easy to come up with a slogan and, and to say something. It's something else that's very, very difficult in practice to, to make this uh, – make a meaningful difference for investors. But, but I think the debate is healthy and I think the focus on you know, doing what's right for the investor is, is, is the focus that this industry has to have if it's going to, uh, if it's going to thrive.
1: Don, it's always enlightening to talk to you. I'm always motivated after talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz
2: and at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview@morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This
0: recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy and or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc., and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data, analyses or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.